Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Right now, movie theaters are temporarily closed, and we'll have to wait a while before we can all sit together again and look up at the big screen. But before the curtain dropped on movie going, I made my annual pilgrimage to the True Falls Film Fest. True Falls is a reliably energizing festival of nonfiction film, curating the best from around the world. It's also a place I take the Film Comment podcast on the road, taking part in Toasted, the late-night event that closes out the festival. This year, I spoke with another rotating lineup of filmmakers, critics, and film professionals about movies at the festival as well as the nitty-gritty of filmmaking and working with people in front of and behind the camera. Among the films discussed were Garrett Bradley's Time, Kalikala's I Wow, I Walk on Water, Renan Alexandrovich's The Viewing Booth, Daniel Hymanson's So Late, So Soon, and Sky Hopinka's Malni Towards the Ocean, Towards the Shore. Now, please bear in mind that this was recorded before a live audience at the Café Berlin in Columbia, Missouri, and so there may be some noise from the audience, although these days I found the sound somewhat soothing. Special thanks to M. Downing of True False for keeping the show running. Let's go to the conversation. Good evening and good morning. Welcome to Toasted After Dark. This is going to become the Film Comment Podcast. Uh, basically, we're just going to talk about movies, and we're going to have filmmakers come up and talk about their movies and other movies. Um, and there's not much more to it than that, um, but that's plenty. Um, and so I'm Nick Rapold. Uh, just to introduce myself, I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. Um, I've been seeing lots and lots of movies. Um, I think... 17 by now. Um, maybe I'll take in another one after this as well. Um, and so there's plenty to talk about, but hopefully you won't hear too much from me because they're smarter people than me that I want to bring up. Um, and filmmakers, of course, uh, who are also smarter than me. Um, but anyway, enough of just really degrading myself. Um, <laughs> let's, let's jump into things and introduce ourselves. Um, maybe we can go from left to right. On the, I just also want to say we have a lovely setup here. In the past, we've been at a table. Um, I felt like I was giving like a press conference or something. Um, but now we have kind of more of a living room um, setup that's very nice. It's, it's really very nice. nice. So big thanks uh, to Cafe Berlin and, and um, M, whose last name I actually don't know, but she's a mastermind. Um, anyway, let's introduce ourselves coming left from right. <laughs> Uh, so my name is Jason lopez Cassell, and I'm the reviews editor at Hyperallergic, as well as a programmer for Black Star Film Festival. And this is my first year here at True False, and I'm really happy to be here. My name is David Diaz Chan. I'm here as part of the PRISM Fellowship as a documentary filmmaker and director. And my name is Mustafa Rani Zeno. I'm also here as part of the PRISM Fellowship and co-directing a film with David. Um, 
Well, let, let's let's just stick with that for for a second, um, because obviously there's whatever thirty eight odd feature films here at the True False Film Fest, um, but also several really important programs, and Prism is one of them. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, Prism is a really wonderful program. This is its first year. Um, it's specifically for um, moving image artists, uh, specifically nonfiction moving image artists of color. And uh, they chose 10 projects um, that are in different stages. And you basically come and you prepare a presentation, combination of talking about your process, who you are as an artist, um, plus the project, and you show some clips. Um, and you, it's both kind of like a fellowship and incubator. And so you get a chance to talk about um, uh, with other filmmakers who are really, the, the programming team did a phenomenal job at curating the project. Um, we kind of all hit the ground running in terms of the issues that we're dealing with um, were really um, very similar. And so we're able to have kind of a high level of conversation with each other and also with other people from the industry. We had some critics, we had some um, funders, some people from um, different organizations and uh, uh, museums and, and art houses. Um, so uh, yeah, it's really been a phenomenal project. David can probably say a little bit more about it. Great. Um, you guys were just talking about time, as I understand. Um, so we can just sort of dive in there because that's a movie that contains years and multitudes of experience in it. And who wants to start? I think that when it comes to time, there's so many things that I want to talk about. But I think that the one thing that has really been on my mind since I first saw that film is the way in which it really speaks to the way in which you have to perform as someone who is not only a person of color, but as someone who's kind of confronting the carceral justice system in a way that is very real and debilitating and frustrating, but also the ways in which in the case of Fox, Fox Rich, who's the main protagonist of the film and how she has to sort of perform this role of being this like very dutiful and patient and loving wife all of the time. And I think that when it comes to films about mass incarceration, what is often left out of the conversation is that to be in a position of even speaking about that story or speaking about what happened to your family, you sort of have to be this model minority. And I think that that comes up a lot in time and where it's a film that is so beautifully shot. And I think that that really kind of comes to a head where you see the ways in which like Fox has to perform this way of being this like perfect, beautiful black wife who is not only physically stunning in her appearance, but has to be sort of patient and kind all the time and polite in dealing with all of these various sort of like small microaggressions and injustices of the supposed criminal justice system that we have and the way in which she has to sort of reckon with not only all of the resources that you have to dedicate to getting your spouse or your partner out of prison, but what it means to confront the everyday bureaucracy of that system and the ways in which it is designed to make you feel small, to make you feel insignificant, and to make you feel powerless. And that was something I appreciated about the film, that it sort of draws out the performative aspect of that and the way in which you have to constantly be on your toes to even be at all emerged in this fight, you know? Yeah. And then also just adding on to that performative aspect, the... Uh, 
there's such a beautiful choreography that Garrett pulled off with the form of the narrative doc and the bio doc in that we all, we all confront that as filmmakers of how can we create humanized characters? How can we round out the characters? And with this kind of family, this with mm-hmm. so many children, what is it, six mm-hmm. kids? Even close. Uh, sorry, six kids and a husband that is largely out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, there was kind of a fair criticism tossed around about, okay, the male characters feel a little flat compared to Fox. But on the other hand, that's a choice you have to make to have an essence of a story that carries through. Mm-hmm. And I think the payoff really justifies that. Um, I think one specific memory for me, like sense memory, was the scene um, where the elder son, Remington, is graduating. And to see him in that white lab coat and performing that perfect family that had to then get transferred down the generations in order to make the argument for clemency and how long that burden can be carried on through oppressed populations yeah. was really heartbreaking but yeah. Garrett played it so beautifully as a, a happy moment and I think it's in those contrasts that time feels very much ready for wide release and wide distribution but is really subversive in its messaging mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely I mean I think the issue of performance is what stood out to me right away and in the beginning I I was wondering how the home videos of Fox filming herself for many, many years, um, how that was going to tie, what, what was the role of, of, you know, performance for her, you know, and how does that tie in, tie into the story of incarceration? Um, but I thought it was, it really blended in beautifully, uh, in the scene where she has to, she's calling and trying to get an answer about the status of, you know, her husband getting released and, it's like an essence of needing to perform, like you said, that minor minority, model minority, and you're like listening on the other side, and you're furious for her. Um, but she knows that if she speaks in any way that is other than extremely kind and overly grateful, that she would not get anywhere, and she, you know, has no power beyond that. And I think it, it really um, that with all of the videos that we have, the home videos of her performing and kind of in a way preparing herself for many many years um and training herself um for this and for just being a successful person in general also we see in another scene when she's performing um you know for her own business um but it, i mean kind of really all of it tied together it really was such a strong um such a powerful story um and also to add like a piece of um imagery that is so important to have in the public consciousness to be a story about incarceration that is truly like pristine and beautifully shot and everyone in it is kind of is shot in this very regal way. Um, and, you know, to say that, yes, there is something that's really horrible that's happening with them, but that is not the only thing that defines them. And, and they are, you know, also, you know, beautiful people, well-rounded people beyond that as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, let's, let's pivot um, to just, a lesser known film or even a short. I think you were talking about a short. Were you talking about a, a dialogue with another, with a short earlier? Um? Yeah, I think there were, there were a number of shorts that I was really excited about seeing here at this festival. Like there was a program earlier this week. It was a shorts program called Rouge, um, which was really looking at a lot of films that were kind of dedicated to the sensorial, you know? And there was a really stunning film that started out the program, which is called When Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. 
and it's by a trio of these Italian directors and it it opens on this really stunning scene of these like kind of elder Italian folks who are like very suntanned and kind of dressed in their Sunday best kind of dancing almost in silence because the sound has been sort of muted for them um, like kind of doing this sort of like choreographed line dance and it's really a film about what it means to lose one of your senses in this case it's sight um, and that sort of plays out throughout the program but in this particular film it's talking about the loss of sight of one of the protagonists and the ways in which that affects his ability to do other things in this case he's a saxophonist and losing a certain amount of his visibility affects his ability to play an instrument that has otherwise defined a lot of his lifestyle. And then that program segues into a few other different films, but another one that really sticks out to me is Alison O'Daniel's film, which is a see the stars landscape. I, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, which is really rooted in a lot of Alison's work with a deaf community in LA. And she specifically was interested in looking at, this instance or the series of instances where all of these different tubas were sort of stolen in LA. It's, it's a really bizarre story and there's no way for me to like talk about this without kind of smiling and chuckling a little bit because it's so bizarre. Um, but yeah, it, it really looks at like, yeah, this is a thing that happened. Like all of these musical instruments were going missing, but rather than focusing on just the sort of supposed criminals that maybe were, were stealing these instruments, but focusing on the people then left behind by this, like the students that then didn't have these instruments who were part of this community of making music and then weren't able to have access to these actual tools for making their crafts, you know? And it renders this in a really stunning way. Yeah. Um, I certainly wish I saw that. That, that, uh, that sounds like an interesting bunch. Um, I want to talk about uh, a song about love. Um, by Ricky Wright, um, who we just met uh, on our way actually coming to the festival. We were on the same shuttle. Um, and we got to talk about the film before seeing it. Um, I finally got a chance to see it today. And it's really a wonderful, wonderful short. It's 14 minutes. Um, and it's really this very textured, layered um, short. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to... I guess I'm paraphrasing what Ricky told me. Um, but it's really, it, it's kind of about, it's about pain, it's about faith, it's about sexuality, it's about kind of living in your sensual body, and, but, but kind of dealing with all the different parts of you. Um, and it does that so well with, like, first of all, a really beautiful kind of dance between um, these uh, speeches or conversations um, kind of combined with music, um, religious music and sometimes not. Um, that kind of converse with each other so beautifully, and then, but then the sound and the image at the same time, that kind of, there's a rhythm to it that it really is completely mesmerizing, and, 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 um, and there's also, it's kind of a combination of uh, music, um, conversations, um, and uh, Ricky um, kind of also performing, and, um, and some kind of dance also in the background, and um, all the combination together was really just extremely powerful. But yeah, so I wanted to call out yeah. that short. It really is an exceptional, exceptional short. And yeah. I really hope it, you know, it, people can access it soon. Yeah. Um, you what's know, the, what's, the, what's the title and filmmaker again? Um, it's Ricky Wright, and it's a song about love. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is going to entirely make sense as a connection, but um, just talking about um, the sensorial and then also 
um, telling a very kind of personal story. Um, what if we talk about I Walk on Water? Okay. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> what I get to it early. Um, no, I mean, I just because it, you know, just some of the things that you can do with a short film and more adventuresome is, is done across the whole canvas of this, uh, I want to say three hour plus three, three, three and a half hours hour. and 20 minutes, um, 200 minutes. Yes. Be exact. Uh, third feature from Kalika La. Also just want to mention, cause it is one of the world premieres here at Truffaut. So, um, so, um, yeah. Who wants to begin? <laughs> uh, Should say we both saw it at a ninth, uh, 30 PM screening. Oh. Um, so the screening ended at about, uh, I think midnight. Um, and so that, uh, definitely colored uh, our, I think, our reception of it. Or oh, mine so you got it at one or something, right? Or, yeah, or at okay. one it was. It was yeah. it was really really late um, when okay. and so so especially with Kalikala's kind of um, very kind of lyrical uh, uh, floaty style of filmmaking, it made it even harder to really focus. And of course, there's not like a, a, a very strong narrative, um, and so it made it even harder. Um, and so that was that was definitely a part of it. Uh, yeah. Got loud in here, um, and the standard issues that come up with um, mm-hmm. Kalika Law's uh, films, you know, from from the first feature, uh, with you know his relationship with Frenchie and with his relationship of how of the kind of images that he is showing, and um, and I think with this one, I, what I did really appreciate is him inserting himself in a way that he hasn't before, mm-hmm. and so suddenly for me his gaze towards women, for instance, is contextualized a lot more and owned a lot more, which for me, and I think for a lot of people, is really problematic, his gaze. Um, but he, the fact that he inserts himself in the film more, I think um, it gives him more ownership of that um, in a kind of a, a more straightforward, uh, more outward way. Um, and so I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed kind of um, uh, having him put himself on the cross as he right. says um yeah. I, I, which i think is really important um especially when it you know his previous two films were very outward looking in a lot of ways um and i i i think for me the the length of the film um i for people who haven't seen the first two, I've heard a lot of people who were like, I was able to really get into this and I was able to lose myself in this kind of dreamlike state. Uh-huh. Um, for me, seeing his first two films and seeing how he was able to accomplish that really well in with a lot less time, yeah. um, it, this one did, did feel really at some point like it was, yeah. it, it, there was definitely moments where I, I had to check my phone and see, okay, how, where are we at with this? I feel bad saying this, but oh. this is really the truth of my experience yeah. with it. Um, um, but when I was able to get beyond those, and there were really moments that really held me really a very, very long time. Um, yeah. And I think it's definitely worth a shot. He talked about wanting to split it into two, um, two parts. Right. And to split it in half. And so I think that would um, change the experience of watching it completely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a definitely, um, it's like a long, dark night of the soul kind of, kind of movie in, in, in terms of just, yeah, doesn't look back in terms of just, it's funny, I, I was at the Berlin Film Festival and saw Siberia, this Abel Ferrara movie, and for some reason it came to mind when I was watching this, because that's a movie where Willem Dafoe, I didn't know I was going to be summarizing Siberia right now, but 
I'm doing it. Uh, but basically, Willem, Willem Dafoe just plays a guy who's looking over his life. For some reason, his job is to tend bar in a Siberia-like location. And he goes through all of his life, and it's not pretty at all. Um, and yeah, similarly here, it's just... Uh, yeah, I mean, everything is, is kind of foregrounded. There's nothing <laughs> nothing in the background. Um, and it's also like very heart in its sleeve about how... You know, he keeps returning just to showing beautiful faces as if it's a it's like a balm for all the rest of the stuff he's just obsessing over. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting to do. I'm not always a fan of that kind of movie so much. Really, <laughs> I mean, it's a whole strain of like, I feel like 1970s New Hollywood cinema, basically that genre of... <clears throat> um, but... Yeah, I mean, this, this sort of this, the sky is the limit at at, um, at, at, at that point. Um, but yeah, the, the photography is also an interesting mix of uh, the, the same kind of stylized, you know, street photographies, um, portraits. Um, and what almost overwhelms it as well, we were talking about sound and image um, manipulation. I mean, I'm, I'm still surprised each time I hear it, I forget it immediately, that he edits the sound first. Which is an incredible way of working and just leads to this really complex and like contrapuntal kind of you know, sonic, whatever, tapestry, every single film. And this is no different. Um, so you always have this, 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 this uh, kind of slip or um, displacement between, you know, you're seeing something on the street, but you're hearing him like negotiating through things with Frenchie. And, um, and then it's strange because Frenchie, who's his... his Homeless pal is also slash muse slash muse. Yeah, exactly. Um, also has like a very distinctive speech pattern. Um, it's it's kind of a I, I I don't know how to describe it. It's not always very clear. So it's it's there's a weird. That's also another element to to it. Um, in, in addition yes. to the score by Fourth yeah. Disciple. Which yeah. is really beautiful, yeah, yeah. but it's really interesting how all th three of those kind of work together in terms of yeah. sound, and yeah. then added with the visuals on top. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if I can pivot again at, at this point because I, I I don't want anyone to just feel like they have to leave <laughs> at a certain point. Um, but maybe now is actually the perfect time to ask a filmmaker to to come up um, and to, and talk. So if you would introduce yourself. Certainly. My name is Isidore Bethel. Yes. I, uh, I edit, direct, and produce. Great. And you have, uh, there, there's one film in, yeah. There's a film this year called So Late, So Soon that Daniel Hyman's oh. directed that I edited and associate produced. Oh, we, yeah. We've got our director <laughs> looking very meek in the, uh, in the crowd. The director is hiding in the shadows. <laughs> Daniel Hymanson, director of So Late, So Soon. Uh, a film about an older couple of, of longstanding um, who uh, they're both artists, um, and they the movie is I found totally remarkable because two or three of the types of documentaries that are very often not very satisfying are ones about cute old couples, um, ones about um, artists and their lives, um, and there's also even a sub sub genre of artist couples. Uh, so this one actually is, is kind of all these things, um, but is just so beautiful. And, I, and for me, it was so beautiful because it's so precise in the sense that it's so faithful to how they talk, how they interact, um, and 
Also, it's very much a house movie. Um, it's basically living with them in this this house for most much or most of the movie, um, which is also a hard thing to do. Like there are fiction films that would kill for a the sort of dialogue that dialogue you know that you 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 edit and, and sculpt for us, um, and also just the way you compress and build together the scenes of their lives into something at the same time have a general thread of, of development. Um, can you tell us a bit about the, the artist couple to begin with, like their names and, and what their métier is? Yeah, so, so the film is about um, Don and Jackie Seiden, who are... It's a loud room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're, they're in Chicago. They're, Jackie uh, is... She, she um, makes sort of installations throughout her home that are always evolving and changing um and and don is is mostly or he was mostly a sculptor um and he made these big sort of animal sculptures and but he, he was also a painter and and um yeah yeah that's um and yeah, I mean, how long did you did you work with them? How long were you filming them? And uh, you know, how did you build up a relationship of trust? Because you, you probably Daniel want to tell them the whole sort of your your lifelong, almost lifelong connection here, because it's also kind of a wonderful element, which you actually don't really re- reveal in the movie. Yeah, so so Jackie taught these weekend uh, children's art classes at the School of Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and, and my sister and I would take the, we took the classes when we were like, I was three years old or three or four years old. And they were just these incredible, um, classes and and we stayed in contact with Jackie. My family stayed in contact with her and we, uh, when I got older, we, she would take us through her home and show us her artwork and, and we were just sort of in awe of the artwork and she became, um, someone who was just very, encouraging of us and loving and and then i when i was a teenager we played music together um and and she would she would play piano and i would uh play bass and yeah and then i I made a short film about her in in high school and then a photography project about her a little later and so just always someone who was like very central in my life um and then started this project Sort of talking about the project in, in 2011. Yeah. Um, and what was, I mean, just to bring in the, like, the, the editing and composition of it, what, what were some of the challenges of telling their story? And, and of, you know, um, yeah, again, it's like, first of all, you start with a really just remarkable kind of like, you know, uh, uh, scene, you know, where <laughs> for some reason... <laughs> She has a kind of small cow figurine that she has hanging above the stove, I guess, or something, with this, like, spider web-like... But but today is the day where she's decided she wants to replace the color of one of the threads that's hanging it. And so that's how you open, and and, and, um, her husband comes in and has to help out with... And it's just obviously so routine that this sort of thing is happening, which is also beautiful because they're both artists, so they're both very kind of accustomed to, like... You know they're working on something. It's, don't ask questions. You know, um, but could you talk about like finding a shape for the film and 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 you know what sort of pieces to put together and also how you avoid like kind of cutesifying them. Like they, it's never like a series of punchlines or anything. 
Yeah, I think um, you asked about challenges, and I think one of the biggest yeah. challenges for us was uh, how do we enter into this story and how do we set up the right expectations for, for viewers? So I think something that um, I knew going into it was like, I want to preserve what has really drawn me to both Jackie and Don, but also Daniel's relationship with them. And it was something about uh, loving the world that's around you, embracing its difficulty as well as its joys, and being attentive to, to small things. Yeah. Um, and how can I, how can Daniel and I work together to hone that kind of attitude in viewers? Um, and that's a, it was like a really delicate thing and took a long time. Yeah. So we, we played around with a bunch of different uh, beginnings to the film. Yeah. Um, and some of them were a little bit more didactic. Some of them were sort of saying what was important about Jackie and that it fell flat because it was just sort of like, here's what you should be getting rather than tugging you along in sort of a, a mysterious game, which is how I would hope that the, the film is ultimately operating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Daniel, you actually did the camera as well for it. So, so you're always just kind of hovering around when the... Which is marvelous because a lot of the stuff you're, you're, you're capturing is really, you know, I, I, th I think I mentioned to you before, one of the scenes that I love is where they're just sitting there reading, you know. I've, I don't think I've ever seen something in a documentary like that. Like, that's always a scene that isn't like in a fiction film and it usually is the prelude to someone, a fight or something, you know. It's like to break that silence. But you just hold the silence of that and I think she like turns over and goes to sleep or something. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, could you talk about, like, how you were framing scenes and how, how you figured out um, kind of where to be and how to be? Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heise's essay film Heimat is a Space in Time, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. I mean, I... I shot for a very long time and a lot of that early footage is like totally unusable and it it, it just like took me a, a long time to figure out it was the first thing I ever shot so it's like I figure out how to like use the camera really but then also like how to navigate that space and I, I had shot in those same places like many many times and so I got comfortable with like the you know the shot of them reading where Jackie sleeps like I had that I had that same frame a million times and they've been sleep they've been sleeping there like many times um, and and then also like um, there there was a period where I was like oh I, I'd like to to like sort of shoot things that are are more active like I'd like I'd like to sort of for them to go out of the house and I, I was like wanting for those things for Jackie to I wanted like to, to film Jackie going to a piano lesson or something like that but then I I sort of came to realize that those smaller moments were like equally as valuable and as exciting and so it's like it, it was just as good or even better to just like be in their little sort of living room area and just like sort of pay attention to the smaller movements and, and interactions between the two of them. Yeah. And I think that there's something... You talked about 
trial and error, figuring out where you should be, what the distance you should be from them, like what was right. And it took, it reminds me of the way that like Jackie works a lot in the, in these installations in our house where like she'll do something, she'll place an object on a surface and walk by it 10 times and then realize that, oh, it needs to be a little bit to the left and flipped over. Right. Um, And I think that's something that uh, Daniel had to, didn't have to, but Daniel ended up imitating in the way that he was filming and then I, in the way that I was editing, we would do some like do a rough version of something and then keep tweaking it little by little as you understand more and more what it is. Yeah. Um, and then another element, in addition to the shooting you have, is you had, I guess, access to some of their kind of other footage. Like you had access to, like it looks like a news story. Kind of. That's like it is presented as a news story in the okay. film. And that's sort of like we're... We're faking it as a news story. Um, Lies. To, to like contextualize it a bit. Um, to not be sort of distracted by like the questions about like what is this video? We put a little news logo there. Um, but that's that's a that's like a a, a short film that Jackie's uh, niece's husband did about about Don. Oh yeah. Um, and, and then about, there is public access footage. There is like television footage yes, as well. Yes, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> there is also just public access. There's the public yeah. access interview in there also. Yeah, which is so wonderful because, yeah, something she said. This is crazy dialogue between um, between her um, and, and Jackie, where Jackie says something just like typically like inspired, <laughs> and the and the interviewer is like. Yes, it's very complicated to... Like, People are so complicated. People are so complicated. Yeah. Which is a line I think I'm going to keep in my back pocket for now. <laughs> Any awkward moment. It'll probably happen later this evening. Um, I want to talk about movies that have inspired you as filmmakers as well. Because um, um, when, when we talked before, Daniel, one thing that, that um, kind of came to mind for me, and I was happy to hear that it was also a film that you really like, um, was... A mid-length, I think it's it's not a feature, right? It's more of like a it's mid-length short, short, yeah. short by Ross McElwee yeah. about the one and only um, Charlene, um, which is also was his teacher. Um, and just, I guess someone has a long friend of the family, also sort of thing. Um, and, and just a, a person you're just, just, just delighted from like frame one to just listen to and hear everything. Um, but that was, that, was a, that was one sort of movie that that's you, you you like yeah absolutely it made, it made me like so excited to hear you say that also like yeah. to, to to like find some connection between like what, yeah. what we were doing in that film yeah what do you what do you like about that movie and, and like also the McElwee the generally um I guess like I it's funny because like I I say I talk about that I've talked about that movie a bunch or I've like mentioned that as a movie that like we should think about but I don't remember a ton about that movie oh, yeah, i know but, <laughs> but, it's, but I, it's just her basically yeah, yeah i mean I, I i sort of like i also i remember her being like incredibly funny and incredibly i remember those interactions with her students and taking her students very seriously and that's like a similar way that that jackie does and also sort of her being you know being incredibly loving in that film then it also sort of showing uh in w- certain ways in, that our life was like very difficult and like yeah uh, yeah. yeah 
I think it's yeah. also a film that like follows the logic of conversation and the logic of like yes. a relationship, mm-hmm. and it lets that yeah. the interpersonal relationship oh. dictate form. Yeah, um, and is it's a film whose form really listens to and respects the people whom it depicts. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought up. That's a great phrase, logic of conversation, because um, that was that was something that kind of kept coming up for me in movies here this year. Where movies, where conversation was really important. Did you did you see one that that uh, comes to mind? Or? I saw half of I Walk on Water. Um, I had to leave oh. before mm-hmm. it finished. But that's yeah. a film that to me like follows the logic of conversation and its its lulls and its moments of acceleration. And yes, um, well, um, would you like to introduce yourself? We have our new filmmaker joining us. Um, my name is Sky Hopinka. Um and you uh, the film you have here is um, called Mothni Towards the Ocean Towards the Shore. Um, and this is a movie I, I, I would actually like to hear you summarize it or, or have what your feeling or description is for it. It's a poetic look at friendship around identity and landscape where I am moving through these different landscapes in the Northwest and the framework is about this origin of death myth from the chicken culture. Yes. Um, and I just saw that. It's very fresh for me. I literally saw it, uh, uh, yeah, it's just mere hours ago. Um, and I, I was, we were talking earlier about films that have really strong, like, sensorial component where they're giving you kind of a, the feeling of what it is to be inside a person's skin almost, you know? Um, and there's that partly in, in, in this movie, I think, and also spiritually to be, as, as much as that's possible, because I found that so challenging in film, how to get that across, you know? Um, and I don't know, I wonder if you could talk about if, how 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 you do that, <laughs> or what, I mean, also one component is actually the music for me was one way because um, there's a, almost a, a drone aspect to it that puts you into a certain state that I think makes you receptive in new ways. Yeah, I feel like in a lot of my short films, I had done work around like pulling music from like popular culture or marginalized popular culture, like Native American pop music from the '60s, you know, as an example. And so it was like really nice to have the soundtrack be from a friend that knows my work, but also is interested in his own practice outside of um, his own painting practice. Um, and to build a film around that, where I often edit to music. And so editing to this music also freed me to explore different soundscapes around the film and around how to create something within like the stereo field between the left and the right channel, where it was sync sound where it wasn't sync sound, where it was like about like diegetic but non-diegetic, but not necessarily about pointing out those differences, but about pointing out the possibilities for escape to be imagined and to play with the idea of the real. Um, so like, like, like that's like what I was thinking about with like these different things, especially around the, the music or what it means to be, I don't know, making a world that isn't about a presence, like a, a present space, but about a possible space. Yeah. Um, and you, it's the film is mo- is focused basically on two people primarily. Um, and could you talk about how you um, how you how you chose them for, for a focus? Yeah, I mean, like with the film, like it's I guess like I, it, it's helped for me to to like um, make myself complicit in it in a sense that's about like three perspectives where yeah. I am with the camera following two people who are my friends that I've known for like 10, 15 years, and. And in some sense, it's a document of our friendship, but also a document of the transitions that they're going through in their lives. Where my friend Jordan 
um, who is a person that I taught Schnickwala to, but also like is very much invested in the culture of the Grand Round community and also like negotiating his life as a father and as a new father like with his second child and my friend Sweetwater who is experiencing like her first child and that sort of transition in her life and also like how me as a camera as a person that is embodied through the camera the, that perspective negotiates the um, story of the origin of death myth as we're trying to I don't know it's like be present and like be people but also um, trying to mitigate the burden of history that is often imposed upon indigenous people in this country. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, Daniel, I'll, I'll ask you the same question. Um, but what's it like filming Friends and how does it make it harder? How does it easier? It... Um, for me, it makes it easier because I feel like I'm terrified of people often, you know? Like, I mean, stranger danger, maybe, <laughs> is the thing I think about. But... I mean, I think a lot about the relationship between exploitation and who you're filming and the relationship you have with the communities that you're involved in and invested in. Um, and so, like, being a Native American, American Indian, and indigenous person from this continent, like, the relationship we have to ourselves represented in media is often an exploitative one. And it's often about narratives around trauma, around observations, around alcoholism, around very different aspects of the deficits that have been imposed upon us through colonization. And so for me to film my friends is a way to counteract that where it's people that I'm close with that I care about and that I will show edits to, that I will make sure that they um, feel that respected in the, like the montage or in how they're being presented. And like that collaborative aspect of it was really important to me too. I mean, especially when I, think about how I occupy these different lines between like documentary, nonfiction, narrative, experimental, and often this idea of like a journalistic integrity is something that is pervasive in how we view ourselves, but also it's something that I have no interest in. And it's something that I think that is important to think about with how nonfiction doesn't have to be journalistic and nonfiction doesn't have to have this objectivity around it. Where it's just like, yeah, I will make films about the Dakota Access Pipeline. I will make films about my own objectivity around it. Yeah. And, or no, no, my, my subjectivity around it, you know? And how like, often, like, you know, objectivity is a fraught pursuit. And so how to embrace the fact that I am complicit in the relationships that I have and how to express that. But then also how to get beyond that into a more poetic realm where it is about the beauty of these yeah. friendships and these landscapes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Daniel, the reason I, I ask you as well, because obviously Jackie is, you've known her for so many years. I mean, how does that same kind of question, how does it make it harder? How does it make it easier? Do you feel like, were there times where like you have to make a hard decision over whether to include something because you kind of feel like, ah, oh, you know, I, I'm close to her. I don't want to, I don't want to like in, intrude. I don't want to like hurt her in some way. That's kind of an extreme example, but just generally, um, I mean, I think insofar as just like filming with or filming a, a, a friend, um, like I think I spent a lot of time working on this film and it's like, it's nice to spend time with people that you like. And so like, I think that's, that's like a, a big part of it. It's like I spent, uh, yeah, it's just like, I'd like to be around people I'm friends with and she was a person I enjoyed spending time with. Um, I think 
this is the only film I've made. So I've never had like the experience of editing someone I wasn't very close with. Um, but there was definitely, I definitely thought a lot about, um, you know, how Jackie would view how she was being edited or, um, things like that. I mean, do yeah. I mean, there's also the kind of, um, there's, um, it's kind of difficult material later on as, as they're both aging and they're kind of losing some, you know, mobility and there's a danger of illness and, you know, mortality. And, you know, there's that one can, you, you know, you could fear that you, you want to be like, a bit, you know, back off from it a little, but I, you find a way to like be, be true to their experience and the fear that they're feeling. Yeah. I mean, I think as, as, uh, as Don sort of, he had more health problems. I think there were questions I had definitely of like whether or not it was appropriate to like be filming with him and like, or yeah. And I think at, at, I'm not sure I always made the right decisions in that way. Like I'm sure at, there were some moments where I feel like I probably filmed and that was wrong. And 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 there are a lot of other moments where like I wished that I. I was like, why did you turn off the camera during that moment? Like they didn't care. Like, you know, you, you, you could have just like continued filming. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, this is, I mean, I, I want to talk about, maybe we can talk about some films that are kind of more, that are also, um, political in some way in, in terms of, um, what they're engaging with or, or, um, Mustafa, I think you mentioned before, The Viewing Booth was one film. And I think that's an interesting film because it's a movie that's almost trying to find if there's a way to circumvent political leanings of, of some sort and to find some kind of mechanism that's just like... So it's, it's appealing to a rational being, which is fascinating. Right, um, right. Um, could, could you describe first what the movie's about a bit? Yeah, it's a movie where Ra'anan and um, uh, Alexander Ritz, um brings he starts out with with uh doing this experiment uh, he doesn't call it an experiment um uh, but i don't know what else to call it so this experiment with seven students um at the university where he teaches where he where it's all students that are um have some kind of connection to israel of some sort where israel is an important place for them um and he shows them these uh, uh he has 40 videos 20 that are made by a uh, a pro-Palestinian um, uh, organization uh, called uh, Betzelem, um, and then 20 that are made by the IDF or an IDF kind of a sympathetic, um, uh, you know, out, outlet of some sort. And so he shows these students um, these videos, and the and they're in a, in a booth where they have to watch these videos and then say, uh, you know, live what they're thinking about. And they can stop and, and discuss it and then go back and watch it again and just think out loud. That's it. And so he, then he settles on one student who, to him, was the most nuanced and the, actually the one that was, you know, really believed what she thought, but is, was engaging in a very critical way with this, with this um, material. And so how are we about, um, like, spoilers? Is, are spoilers okay? What's... Go for it. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> we, should, we discussed the total work. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> So this is a work that, I don't know, for me as a documentary filmmaker, was really difficult to watch. I mean, very exciting for me to watch because I was like, I want to know what happens with this because this is what all of, not all of us filmmakers, but all of us documentary filmmakers that are trying to affect the, um, uh, you know, perception of something or the opinion about something, 
um, this is the, the kind of test that we need to know if it's even possible for us or, and, and is there even a point in trying? Um, and so he goes through this uh, process and basically by the end, she's very intelligent and very smart and he shows her the first time, you know, these, these things, he records it and then he shows her her responses a second time and then discusses her responses um, from the first time. Um, and so it's this, it's this uh, kind of very thorough... Uh, test of okay, reflecting on that, talking about about what she thought, and going further. But then in the end, basically the ending is that okay, she's not going to change her mind about things. Um, it's she thinks what she thinks, and there's a selective bias that there is impenetrable, you know. Yeah. Um, Which is I just the incre- an incredible and kind of courageous, but but just also like. It just knocks the wind out of you when it comes to that point where, and it, and he, I guess he also allows himself to just be like, I have a lot to learn. Like, you know, I'm learning a lot here. And, and to end a movie on that note is uh, bold. Because <laughs> um, it's not like the experiment is like, okay, we figured it out. We found a common language. Um, you, right, exactly. We can actually chip away at this, you know? Exactly. So, I mean, the first question in the q and I was like, is this your last movie that you're ever making? Because what's the point? Like, where do we go from here? What's the point? Yeah, yeah. You know? And so, but we talked a little bit afterwards, and I think there are a few. It's not all bleak. These were, it's important to say that these were all YouTube videos that are pretty short. Right, virals, yeah. Yeah, so it is, it is important to kind of remember this is not commenting on all documentary or all film or long form. It's, this is short form YouTube stuff. Um, that doesn't really have necessarily strong characters in it. That doesn't have, it doesn't get you in really emotionally involved in something other than it's made for shock value, really. So with that kind of very superficial footage, yeah, that's understandable. So that doesn't mean that we don't have space in, you know, much longer works to actually make this kind of, um, impact. And also, but I think it does underscore though, the importance of, um, the using the film as one step to actually create a deeper conversation, actually create relationships because it's proven that really the one thing that truly does change people is real life relationships. And so if a film can be an, you know, a way to kind of start a relationship, then we actually have an opportunity to, to actually make a change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's great because it lets me segue a little into an, another couple of films that are also trying to figure out, just yeah how we relate and and how we can relate with civic institutions as well um one of them is mayor did did you see mayor 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 uh yeah boy state yeah yeah, i saw mayor you saw mayor okay i saw mayor yeah yeah and that's that's interesting because that's like polit you know politician out in the world you know like walking around it uh, kind of the that's always the classic thing about the mayor is that they actually have to rub soldiers uh, shoulders with the people that they're governing mm-hmm. um and that is set in um, ramallah ramallah in right. palestine and uh david david osset is david osset yeah the director uh-huh. and yep. it's it's basically kind of following his day-to-day um i mean the overarch i mean there you know it also kind of has a climax and um that's really intense having to do with the the idf um yes um, that actually could have been one of these viral videos. Absolutely. Probably is. There probably is a viral video at the end of, yeah. of um, Mayor. Um, and I, I, yeah, I really found Mayor interesting, but also frustrating. I think because of the nature of the job, mm-hmm. which yes. is that 
sometimes you do things, sometimes you're not doing things, and it's hard to capture all of that. Yes. Um, but it's an interesting movie in just seeing, like, yeah, like praxis. Like, how do you put ideas into action? Yes. I, I think that really was um, a very well-made film. Um, I think, you know, compared with other true-false films, it was definitely more on the traditional, uh, in terms of structure, in terms of, you know, it comes from the traditional, you know, Western documentary um, but within that, it really is made with such really awesome craft um, and um, extremely well edited, um, really well shot. But most importantly, I think tonally, it really captured the tone of the city. I've been to Ramallah um, before, and it really captured the tone of the city and the personality of the people in the city and the humor um, and the uh, kind of hospitality and somewhat of the um uh, irreverence also kind of you know or the way that that the uh, what i loved about it is that life in palestine on a daily basis is not this like horrible kind of always being bombarded by bombs or the idf it's a lot more i went when i went there i was really surprised because life was a lot easier than i thought and a lot harder than i thought both at once oh interesting i think like, i'm interested in this idea of irreverence because mm-hmm. like, i feel like i embrace a lot of that too it's yeah. in terms of like survival absolutely where it's like you have a certain sense of proficiency and understanding of like the culture and the situations you live in, mm-hmm. and like that becomes a, a reverence in mm-hmm. a sort of way. Exactly, but that doesn't undermine the importance of the thing that you're being irreverent towards. Absolutely, you know? absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah. No, that's a great point, and I think this is where, um, in the film, I mean, you see the way that they interact with the IDF. Um, it's this really, really kind of very hard scene to watch of in seeing it in real time happening in front of you. It's undeniable. Um, and as opposed to those clips in, you know, the viewing booth that are kind of just a short clip, you're seeing here the, the, you know, before, during and the aftermath. Um, and it's undeniable kind of the horrendous nature of what the IDF is doing. But then the day after life goes on and no one talks about it. it like I talked to David about it. He's like, I was so surprised the next day I was assuming everyone, it would be the, the talk of the town. Life goes on, people move on. And as someone who's from Syria, and, you know, with the, obviously the war that's happening there and every time people, someone hears like, oh, you're from Syria. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm like, people are resilient. People move on. This doesn't define people. And this is what I loved about the film so much is that it didn't let the occupation define the, the city or the people, um, but it was still very much real and it was there and it was not underplayed at all. Yeah, yeah. I think another film that I saw today that I wanted to call out was, um, yeah, Seven Years in May, which I think did a really beautiful job of picking up on some of the things that you're talking about, which is creating a really intimate portrait of larger societal problems, which in this case is the state of policing in Brazil. And Alfonso Ochoa, who's a director, really spends a lot of intimate time with one of his subjects who is recounting this like really horrific instance of police brutality where he was kind of targeted for zero reason honestly and was completely brutalized by the police force in brazil and was sort of and how that instance or that incidence really affected the rest of his life going forward and which sort of led to this pattern of displacement and then addiction and then this kind of cycle of dependency that really wouldn't have occurred if it weren't for this like really brutal incident and I think what struck me about the film that I thought was so stunning about it was the way in which it really 
created this like very cinematic rendering of the monologue, mm -hmm. you know? And we see this like central subject really kind of recounting this like horrific incident and talking about what happened to him, but it's being rendered in this way that is so stunning cinematically that I think it makes it that much harder to turn away from. Mm -hmm. And in the Q&A, a lot of what the director talked about when, when prompted in, in a few questions was why he chose to render it that way. It's a very long take in terms of mm. a monologue. It maybe goes on for about 10, 15 minutes or so. Mm. And the subject of the documentary is really kind of describing what happened to him. And we're focused as the audience on his face and watching him recount this horrific incident. Mm. But the way in which he's rendered is so stunning visually. And it really... Uh, as Alfonso Uchoa says, like, it's a way of kind of counteracting the erasure of that story mm. by making it not only something that is like physically dominant on the screen, mm. but it's something that is rendered in such a way that we are, as consumers of cinema, prone to pay attention to. Right. And I think that the way in which it sort of alternates between him and another subject of the film who's also recounting another horrific incident mm -hmm. makes it something that is just sort of impossible to turn away from, you know? Yeah. And at the end of the film, not to, to go into spoilers, um, but there's a use of this game, like this common Brazilian game mm. in terms of the way in which... Um, in a way in which you're really like sort of confronted with mortality, you know? Right. And it's a game that people play as children. And it's a game that actually, if you really think about it, has this very brutal side to it. Mm. And yet the way in which Uchoa renders it cinematically makes it something that you can't look away from, something that you have to pay attention to, and something that, by the very virtue of how it's rendered, cinema like, rendered visually, mm. makes it that much more urgent, you know? Especially yeah. as we're at a time where policing is increasingly under scrutiny and it's very much something that we're discussing more and more openly yeah absolutely i think it this film seven years in may is one that takes such a huge issue like you said all these issues of police brutality the systemic issues that are so large especially in a country like brazil that is huge yeah. and distills it down to something extremely simple extremely straightforward and extremely elegant and it basically the whole film is just three ingredients um, in really long takes, but yeah. it, 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 it does it deals with all of these issues in such a direct and real way, in such a cinematic way, but not one um, like other films that are beautiful and cinematic and pristine that distance you from the subject, that right. really throw you deep into that subject, even though you're just listening to them talk about it. And it's not really a lot happening on screen, but it really throws you deep into their hearts of what's going on and, yeah. and, and kind of um, puts you in their shoes in such a powerful in simple and brilliant way. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, are we getting the hook? Is this the, well, all right, I guess we'll, we'll bring our, um, our conversation to a landing, I suppose. Um, <laughs> don't sound so upset. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every plane uh, must land. Every plan must land. Yes. That's true. It's, it's better that we bring it in for the landings. Yes. Than that we are something else happens to it. Yes. Um, buckle your seatbelts. Yes, buckle your seatbelts. We're coming in for landing. Um, well, I want to thank you all for your wonderful um, service here on stage in this um, wonderfully cacophonous environment. 
Um, thank you, True False Film Fest. Yes, for um, uh, thank you all. Yes, thank you to our audience, wonderful yes. audience, all the film goers, um, and to Cafe Berlin for hosting this again. Um, another year of Toasted, um, my 35th year of Toasted. I'll try that joke again. It, Thank you for having us. Good night to all and to all. Good night. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.